0: October 16th, 2016. It's 2.03 p.m. Toronto, and the best show ever starts right now. The best
1: show ever. Refers to the best show ever on this station at this time so far this year. And no animals were harmed in the making of this radio program. Listening to Mark Tuey on In-Depth Radio, News Talk 1010.
0: In today's program, we'll go in-depth with soldier and author Dylan Hillier about his new book, One Soldier, and what it's like to fight ISIS face-to-face, and whether they can be beaten. And a Canadian on death row in Montana wants to come home to Canada. He's hoping our Sunny Ways Prime Minister will will rescue him. Should he? A man has applied to the Ontario Superior Court for a court order to stop anyone in Ontario from referring to the Cleveland Indians as, well, the Cleveland Indians. The court will hear the case Monday just hours before Game 3 in the American League Championship Series kicks off, to mix my metaphors, at 8 p.m. We'll talk to his lawyer and find out why. All of this, plus today in history, new music, the Week in Review, and Stupid of the Week before 4 p.m. It is a pretty gloomy looking day outside there, wet on the roads, which of course are predictably chaotic because it's a weekend and it's Toronto. And Toronto closes to visitors on the weekend. We don't want you here. Just stay away. There's lots of things to see and do in Mississauga. There's wonderful things in Oshawa. There's great things happening in Caledon. But for God's sake, stay out of downtown Toronto because we don't want your kind here. That's why the city closes the streets every weekend, especially this weekend. I'm telling you it's like clockwork. We'll have more to say about that at the back end of the program and the stupid of the week segment just to foreshadow a little bit. I think you might be I think you might know where I'm going with that. October 19th this week. Three days from now is the one-year anniversary of the uh, election of Justin Trudeau and the Liberals to the seat of power in Ottawa. And uh, we're not going to dwell on that in this program, but, uh, you know, I wondered whether or not anybody had noticed a change. So I conducted a highly scientific and very accurate Twitter poll. And uh, here are the results. After one year of liberal rule, my life in Canada is, I asked, better 32% of the people say it's better. 20% say it's about the same. 20% say it's exactly the same. They can't tell what's changed. And 28% say worse. 40%, eh, no difference. 32% better, 28% worse. That's probably a rousing endorsement, about as good as it's going to get, frankly, for a sitting prime minister. Um, Yeah, he's done now one quarter of his mandate. Which means that he's really got this year coming up to do all the heavy lifting, to do all of the stuff that's going to cost you money, that's going to hurt you, that's going to change your life. Because he's going to need the back two years of his mandate to make it all better again. That's kind of how it works, right? So expect a really brutal year from the federal government coming up. It's going to be ugly. But if he ever can figure out how to actually fulfill some of his promises, like legalizing marijuana, maybe we won't care. We'll all just be in a happy place. And he can just raise taxes with abandon because, hey, man, just chill out past the Doritos. Anyway, that's uh, politics for you. Hey, I live in a city and so do, well, you live either in or close to a city where, and this, this dawned on me last week, right now at the same time, we have playing professional sports, the Blue Jays, the Maple Leafs, the Argos, and the Raptors all at the same time. I'm not a super sports guy, but that's kind of fun. I mean, this is a happening city. We've got... Cool stuff that's going on. You can't get to it, of course, because you can't drive downtown and the TTC's closed on the weekends. But, you know, if you could get downtown or you're one of the, you know, the chosen few, the anointed who live on the Mount and actually reside in downtown Toronto, uh, this is a fantastic city to live in. There's lots of exciting things going on. So, yeah, it's a bright spark in uh, in my week. I also watched uh, a little bit of that, uh, the first regular season game for our beloved Maple Leafs, Austin Matthews, that kid. Wow. Four goals. One game. First game ever. First ever regular season NHL game. This kid produces four goals. All of the goals that the team scored. That's phenomenal. But you know that he's playing for the Maple Leafs because even with that performance, we still lost. Because the Maple Leafs know how to snatch defeat out of the jaws of victory nine times out of ten. They're brilliant at that. But I will say I have hope because of the 42 guys I think they dressed in that game. I only recognized six of the names on the jerseys. It's an entirely new crop of, of people. I used to joke on this radio program that the way to make the Leafs better would be to fire the Leafs and just promote all the Marlies. Well, it's kind of like they've already done that this year. So it could be a really exciting year. Yeah, that's all of my Oh, I got a comment about Donald Trump. I have to say something about him. Uh, yeah, there was such great hope that somebody could come from the outside and uh, shake up the system and, you know, make it a little bit better for people who have not been well served by the status quo establishment in the United States. But... I think that window has closed. Donald is completely off the reservation. He's done. He's finished. He's lost it. He has not been on his message track, which is something frankly that appeals to people. The way, you know, when you listen to what he wants to do, for a large swath of Americans, that's what they would like their government to do. Crack down on illegal immigration. Focus on jobs and bringing, you know, things back to the United States, that might be right or might be wrong, but that's what the people want, and the people should get the government that they want. As a government of the people, by the people, for the people, that's what that means. It's not supposed to be a government of the super-smart elite, spoiled for them because they know better than the people. That's not how democracy works. Anyway, Donald Trump has pooched it. He is uh, just firing off, you know, on all cylinders in all directions with with no reasonable thought. And uh, he's lost the track that could have won him the election, which means that Hillary Clinton is going to win. It'll be closer than anybody thinks it will be because it always is in the United States. But the two things I take away from, from this situation. One, the process works. Their long uh, process to select candidates and then to you know select a president really does show you the ins and outs of the two candidates that are left standing on election day. You see them warts and all. It's pretty hard to hide your faults. So that's a good thing. The second thing, though, is that they do need still to fix the part of the process that ended up with these two guys. Once, once we had to, you know, we know them in and out, so you're going to be able to choose the one that you want. Donald Trump simply doesn't have the stamina, I'm going to use that word even though he says that about Hillary, to maintain his discipline long enough to run an election campaign and to win it. So there's no doubt in my mind, as much as I think that what he would do probably would be better for the United States than what Hillary would do, he's not suitable for the job because he cannot stay on message even for the length of a campaign. He doesn't have the discipline. So I don't want him running the White House. Don't really want Hillary either, but their, pro- their problem is they have a two-party system. There's no other choice. And that is a problem for the United States. This is the greatest, most powerful country on the face of the earth and these are the two best candidates they can come up with? That's a problem. There's something seriously wrong in the party system in the U.S. I want to talk to you about this, and I'm going to open up the phone lines because I suspect, like me, this probably gets your blood boiling just a little bit. It's a story that I saw in the news today. A Canadian who has been on death row in Montana for decades. His name is Ronald Smith. He's 59. He admitted to murdering two young men over 30 years ago. He had the option to uh, accept a plea deal that would give him a life sentence, but instead he asked for the death penalty. He later had a change of heart, um, and he's been sort of back and forth in the legal system ever since. They have scheduled his execution five times, and five times it's been postponed. Uh, he's caught up now in Montana. They haven't had any executions since 2008 because uh, there's a court battle going on over the kind of drugs that they use. They use lethal injection. If you follow the news at all, you know there's been a whole lot of controversy over the type of drugs they use and how well they work. So he's caught up in that, but he has been given hope by the government of Justin Trudeau. Uh, specifically, Foreign Affairs Minister Stéphane Dion said in February this... Stefan Dion said, if the government of Canada does not ask for clemency for every Canadian facing the death penalty, how can we be credible when we ask for clemency in selective cases or countries? We must end this incoherent double standard. Canada opposes the death penalty and will ask for clemency in each and every case, no exceptions. That's Stefan Dion, the Foreign Affairs Minister. His ministry, a spokesman just recently, confirmed that Canada will support and does support Smith's bid for clemency, the reduction of his sentence from execution to something. But Ronald Smith, who's 59, wants more. I'm ready to come home, he says. If you're willing to take me back, I'm willing to come home to Canada. Well, let's put that question to you, Canada. Are you willing to take this guy back? If uh, Should, Pierre, uh, should uh, the Prime Minister go to great lengths to have this Canadian's death sentence commuted in Montana... And then there is a program, we saw it with Omar Cotter, we've seen it with other prisoners, where we can have them transferred back to serve out the length of their sentence in a Canadian prison. Should we welcome this guy, Ronald Smith, 59, back with open arms, into our perhaps a little cozier, perhaps a little bit more comfortable, and certainly not going to kill anybody, prison system. 416-872-1010 is the number to call. Justin Trudeau's got his sunny ways on... Stefan Dion says, we don't believe in killing people. This prisoner, convicted to de- sentenced to death 30 years ago, he wants to come home to Canada. Are you ready to take him back? Let me know.
1: Toronto's breaking news, traffic and weather, continues with Mark Tuey on In-Depth Radio, News Talk 1010.
0: Ronald Smith who's now 59 years old, was born in Red Deer, Alberta. He was sentenced to death for the murder of two men, Harvey Madman Jr. and Thomas Running Rabbit in East Glacier, Montana, back in 1983. He had the chance to accept a plea bargain and receive a life sentence, but he didn't want that. He asked for the death penalty, and he got the death penalty. He subsequently had a change of heart. He says, you know, when he saw his 10-year-old daughter was able to reconnect with her and, uh, and, and asked a lawyer to fight uh, for his case, his execution has been scheduled five times, and each time was postponed. Now he is hoping, as he says, that the Canadian government is going to bail him out, is going to rescue him. If the government of Canada... Nope, that's not what I wanted to read. Uh, I'm considerably more optimistic, said uh, Ron Smith. I'm considerably more positive about the Canadian government becoming involved, at least. And with their involvement, I think it bodes well for me. Foreign Affairs Minister Stéphane Dion's on record saying Canada will ask for clemency in the case of every Canadian sentenced to death. Not something that the previous Conservative government would do. They did it on occasion but they picked and chose their their circumstances. Ron Smith says that he'd like to come home. I'm ready to come home. If you're willing to take me back, I'm willing to come home. Should Canada intervene and ask for his death sentence to be commuted to life in prison? And should we ask for him to be transferred back to Canada to serve the rest of his life sentence in a Canadian prison? 416 872 Ten ten is the number to call. You can also reach me at the text board, which is 71010. 10. Let's go uh, to the line. Sean in Toronto. Should Canada welcome this guy back home? Sean, are you there? Oh, and, um, hi.
2: No, Canada shouldn't welcome this guy back home. Um, my comment on the death sentence is that if there's no doubt that you were charged with we committing an erroneous act, you should receive the death sentence one week after you've been charged. One week gives you enough time to say goodbye to your family members and repent, if you wish. Um, it's very costly to keep people in prison, and uh, this is one way of reducing the cost.
0: It is. But what about uh, what about the right of appeal? Don't you think someone who's convicted of uh, I mean, we often sentence the wrong people. Shouldn't they have a chance to appeal? That'll take more than a week. If the
2: evidence is clear, there is absolute no doubt. These people take a life of another. The, there's supposed to be retribution. In clear evidence, absolute 100 percent, no doubt. Okay. One week after you've been charged, you receive the death sentence. In the, in fact, this will even make the death te- death sentence more deterrent for people not to commit
0: murder because. Fair enough. Uh, I don't. I don't want to go, Sean, too much into the whether we should have the death penalty or not. We don't have it in Canada. They do have it in some states. Should the Canadian government, though? Intervene in this case and ask Montana not to execute him? And should they ask for him to come back to Canada to serve out his sentence in, in a Canadian prison?
2: No, they shouldn't intervene. Um, he will come to Canadian cushy, built prisons, watching CNN all day, and it's going to cost us taxpayers money to look after him.
0: Fair enough. Thanks very much. I appreciate your uh, call, Sean. A lot of people on the text board, I think, agree with Sean. We've got uh, You know, one saying, no, 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 why should Canada, why should the Canadian taxpayers be on the hook to pay for housing this criminal when we didn't convict him, let him rot in the good old USA? I think that's probably where I come down on this issue. I'm not a big fan of the death penalty. I have no moral qualms about killing murderers at all. Uh, And, you know, if I could be as certain that we had the right guy as Sean was, I would be quite happy to uh, have it executed, uh, you know, that person executed right after the trial with a bullet. That's the cheapest way to do it. Quick, easy, done. And be home in time for dinner. But uh, I don't believe that our justice system is quite that accurate. Quite frankly, we have sentenced people to prison for things that they didn't do. We get it wrong sometimes. And because we sometimes get it wrong, I don't think... The death penalty is something that we should be looking at bringing back in Canada. But I also don't think we should be imposing our mores and standards on other countries. In the United States, some states have the death penalty. In this case, Montana has it. Uh, the text board also lights up with this uh, text at 71010. Let this guy get the death penalty. He deserves it. Um, and this is a bit uh, facetious, but what's next? Is Trudeau going to give Paul Bernardo sponge baths? Yeah, I think, eh, well, there you go. That's uh, Probably not. I'm, I'm guessing no on the sponge baths. The, uh, the issue is a difficult one. I think that uh, no doubt the Canadian government is going to ask for his sentence to be commuted. It has practically been commuted because of the... Uh, the time that it 's uh, taken, like it 's been thirty years already that 's uh, longer than most people get on a life sentence in Canada already. If he came back to Canada to serve up his time here year we 'd probably let him go. Uh, that is really all the time that I'm going to take on, on that particular issue. We've got a couple of people stranded on the phones here, but uh, sorry. This is how talk radio works. you got to call at the beginning of the segment, folks. You hear the topic, you pick up the phone, you dial 416-872-1010, because if you call at the end of the topic, I won't have time for you. Because next I'm going to go to something. I've been looking forward to this. on uh, Earlier this week I had the chance to speak with a young Army veteran named Dylan Hillier who was a Canadian soldier, served in Afghanistan, came back, left the military, and then he went back to Iraq on his own as a volunteer to fight alongside Kurdish Peshmerga soldiers against ISIS, the terrorist group that's laying waste to much of the Middle East. Uh, Coming up next, I'm going to sit down for a conversation with him. And uh, we're going to learn a little bit what it was like to meet ISIS face-to-face and be one of the... Well, in fact, he was the first Western volunteer, I think, to fight against ISIS in Iraq. That's next on In-Depth Radio News Talk 1010.
1: Yeah. He's the only man to launch a career by getting fired on live national TV. Mark Tuohy. In-Depth Radio, News Talk, 1010.
0: As I said earlier this week, I had the pleasure of sitting down with Dylan Hillier, a former Canadian soldier and the first Western volunteer to fight against ISIS in Iraq. He's written a new book describing his experience there. It's called One Soldier, A Canadian Soldier's Fight Against the Islamic State. It's a great read, full of hard-hitting, frontline insight, and available at bookstores everywhere. Dylan? Welcome to the program. Thank you very much for having me, Mark. I'd love to jump right in to our discussion by asking you to read the uh, this passage, the the first one from your book.
3: I stepped out into the night and saw trucks being fueled up and started, weapons, belts being loaded, men running and shouting. Ethan and I were ready to go. We helped move some stores and gear into the beds of trucks and then hopped in. I remember all the movement and excitement as our convoy got ready to move. The moments before battle battle are always like this. Adrenaline starts pumping, and you feel in yourself a strength as a man and as a warrior. There's no doubting or questioning your purpose in life. You must kill the enemy. I will kill the enemy. I can't lie about this. The feeling is intoxicating.
0: Just for the listener's perspective, Ethan was a former U.S. Marine uh, who eventually joined you in Iraq to it- help fight alongside the Peshmerga.
3: Yeah, that's correct. Uh, Ethan, he's a great guy, he had done a tour in Anbar province with the US Marine Corps in 2006 and he was the only one in our online group other than me that decided to make the journey over.
0: Right near the beginning of the book, you describe soldiering with the Canadian army in Afghanistan. You were, I think, the last, uh, one of the last Canadian uh, troops to be over there.
3: Yeah, we were the last rotation.
0: Yeah, you describe that as being unfulfilling. How so?
3: I guess I would draw a comparison to my time in Iraq. And when I when I went to Iraq, the locals, the Peshmerga, loved seeing me out there. Uh, you know, the Peshmerga would stop when there was a lull in the battle and take pictures with me. The locals would come out and... Same thing, take pictures, you know, wave, shake hands. I had virtually no interaction with the Afghan population and I got the distinct feeling that they didn't care to have us there.
0: Do you feel like you were an occupying force in Afghanistan?
3: I I, I don't know what to feel because there was just, there was no interaction so I, I just don't know if, I, I, I didn't feel great about being there.
0: What was left undone? You talk about you're unfulfilled in Afghanistan. What did you need to fulfill that drew you back into soldiering?
3: Well, I guess you, you know, I was sitting there watching this ISIS genocide unfold on the evening news while I was working up in Alberta you know, I was reading stories about the mass rape and enslavement of Yazidis, ISIS, decapitating people, murdering people. You know, we've all seen the the videos and you know I, I I wanted I just wanted to help people and that's something I didn't feel I really accomplished in Afghanistan and you know there was the fact that there was about 90 Canadians over there fighting for ISIS committing these atrocities and I felt like I may be able to use the skills I learned in the Canadian military to provide some balance and then there was Nathan Cirillo and Warrant Officer Patrice Vincent, which were, you know, murdered by ISIS-inspired jihadis. I know there wasn't a direct connection, but, you know, that hit close to home. That was the, the moment I decided, yeah, I'm going to go uh, go help the Kurds fight these people. You write in the book about your hatred of
0: the evil that Isis represents and your desire to get to the front line to get, quote, trigger time and kills. Uh, You write, sometimes in life you have to do the right thing despite the risks and the dangers. That's what it means to be a man and a soldier. When you look back now at that time, how much of your drive do you think was an altruistic desire to defeat evil uh, compared to how much of it was a, a compulsion that I think a lot of soldiers have to prove yourself, whether that's to yourself or to somebody else, I don't know.
3: It, I I mean, the main motivation was to go help people. I, I didn't go there with the explicit intention of killing people. I knew that it may happen. But, you, you know, mostly I wanted to just, like, help the Kurds. I think they're great people. They, you know, whether someone's Sunni, Shia, Arabic, Yazidi, Christian, they protect everybody and I feel like they're fighting for humanity. So that that was the main motivation and you know if I got to prove myself in combat I mean that's... I mean that's not why I went but I I felt like it may happen and... You did get a chance
0: uh, to get into combat. You got into a lot of it in Iraq. Um, In the book you describe your first real taste of battle in Iraq, on a bridge at Tal El Ward. Uh, You were attached to the Kurdish People's Party at the time, which which the PKK, a lot of Canadians, I think, would consider them a terrorist group. You yourself describe how they're a pretty unsavory group of people. Uh, You were working for a, a platoon commander that you call PKK Ali, and you ended up rushing across a defended bridge right through the enemy's kill zone and up a deadly hill on the other side. Uh, I'd like you to read the second package from your passage from your book, which describes that.
3: There was only one way across the canal, a single bridge about 50 meters long that spanned the water. Like the rest of the country, the Kurds were on one side and ISIS on the other. PKK Ali shoved, shoved my shoulder again. There was no common language b- between us, but his meaning was clear as he gestured to the bridge and the bridgehead in front. I looked into PKK commander's eyes and nodded my understanding, then agreement. If we're going to cross, there would be no hesitation, no time to think or question. I'd come here to kill the enemy. The enemy was over the bridge, so that's where I had to go.
0: A terrifying prospect. The one thing I wanted to ask you about that particular scene, though, is because I think there comes a time uh, for every soldier when you're suddenly faced with this very clear realization that you're about to do something that's probably, at least possibly, but probably going to get you killed. What's that moment like? Can you describe it for us? Well,
3: you know what? I didn't really start thinking about what would have happened if I got shot until after I was home. I mean, I it was a couple of weeks after I got home and I was... Uh, Watching uh, all my GoPro footage, and, you know, I I don't know if you're going to talk about this later, but uh, Brother Han, who got shot in the face, I mean, I was thinking, like, what if I got shot in the face? Like, what would that have felt like? What what would I have done? What would have happened to me? And, but the whole time I was over there, I, it really didn't enter my mind. And maybe that's a coping mechanism or stupidity. I don't. I don't know. <laughs> um, the
0: brothel that you're talking about was a Peshmerga soldier. In that battle, you'd ridden up to that battle with him in a truck. You seemed to have developed some of a rapport, and then you watched him get shot. Describe that for me, and how did that feel?
3: Yeah. So, I I don't know exactly where he was situated. Maybe ten feet away from me, uh, on the berm, kind of in the prone position he I didn't see him go down I just turned around and he was on the ground so he got shot uh on the right side or left side of the nose and out the cheek and I rushed over grabbed him by the collar of his shirt drug him kind of under cover, and started you know doing what I was trained to do and bandaging him up and and that that was uh that's what I went there to do more more than anything is just I, I, I helped him I helped him, you know, on an individual level. I'm not gonna sit here and say that I saved his life, but that's those are the kinds of things I like to remember.
0: We'll find out exactly what happened with that wounded soldier when my conversation with Dylan Hillier continues after a short break on in-depth radio news talk 1010.
1: Toronto's breaking news, traffic, and weather continues with Mark Tuey on In-Depth Radio, News Talk 1010.
0: Before the break, I was talking with author and soldier Dylan Hillier uh, about his book, One Soldier, a Canadian soldier's fight against the Islamic State, and about a Kurdish soldier shot through the head that he had bandaged up on the battlefield. I asked him, did he live?
3: Yeah, he lost his eye, but... I mean, all things considered, getting shot in the face is—I'd yeah, say—he's pretty lucky. Yeah.
0: Did you ever see him again?
3: I didn't. No. I just—I ran into P.K.K. Ali towards the end of my trip there and asked him, and he said, "Yeah, he's like kind of, you know, with hand, with hand <laughs> gestures and everything." I knew that he had lost his eye, but he was alive, so that made me feel really good.
0: In that same battle, you killed two ISIS jihadis. It was very up close and personal. After surviving that charge across the bridge, you and, I guess, a couple of others decided to try and outflank the ISIS forces. Very quickly, you realize you've made a mistake. You're in the open, you're totally exposed, there's no cover. You come under effective fire from two shooters less than 150 meters away. Why are you still here alive talking
3: to me? I guess that uh, that field craft and individual soldier skills, sight picture, squeeze, exhale, I mean those little things are certainly contributed to my survival.
0: You describe a situation where you're you're not frozen, like you immediately react the way you've been trained to react, but it's almost a, a tennis match of exchanging rounds back and forth and you're waiting for one side to either get lucky or become more accurate. What was going through your head? How were you feeling at that moment, knowing that at any minute they might strike you before you knock them down?
3: I, I can't even remember. I mean, it's, it's just drills. I mean, you just you just do what you're trained to do, and there's very <clears throat> little thinking involved, I would say. It's muscle memory and just... You know get rounds downrange so
0: and if I understand if I remember the story correctly they eventually sort of their will broke and they turn and and ran and you had an opportunity to to to, to down them
3: yeah they got up to I think pull back and or they waffled and that was my opportunity and that seems to be a classic uh, tale of
0: of combat through the ages it's often whoever can last the longest or whose will breaks first or or who sort of sticks it out just a little bit longer. What's it like to realize that that you've survived something, that instance that I'm sure there were others, basically because the enemy blinked first?
3: I don't know if I've really given it that much thought. I mean, I know I'm lucky and they were unlucky. I guess I was the you know, my training in the Canadian military paid off.
0: Uh, you went to Afghanistan as part of what I'll describe as a big NATO machine. I mean, the Canadian Army is a piece of that. Uh, when you land in Afghanistan, you're you're with buddies that you've trained with. You know them often better than your own siblings. Uh, you're working with NCOs and officers who you've trusted. You've learned uh, how they work. You're backed by a logistic system and a supply system and a medical system and air support. It's all there to uh, to help you achieve your job. When you went to Iraq and landed in Soleimani on the airport on the 17th of November, 2014, you were all alone, absolutely alone, when you stepped into the airport. There wasn't even a, a greeting party there for you at that point. What was going through your
3: mind? So, when I was getting on the plane in Qatar to for the last leg of my trip, that was... Arguably one of the you know, I had a lot of terrifying experiences when I was over there, you know one we just talked about But that that was you know, I would say almost equally terrifying just kind of wandering into the unknown and I'd got you know a message from Lieutenant Ali That he was no longer gonna be able to pick me up at the airport. So already red flags are going off I don't know if I'm walking into my own kidnapping I mean, it was absolutely terrifying, but everything panned out, I got to, I cleared customs with the help of the Peshmergas that were there that Ali had sent, and you know, when I got onto the sprawling base in Suleimania, it was, uh, I definitely breathed breathed a sigh of relief.
0: After the battle at Talaward, the one that we were talking about just a moment ago, the day after the after the, the main battle, you were basically doing a mop-up patrol, just sort of checking the, the village with uh, some of the PKK soldiers you were initially attached to, and you saw a pretty horrific sight. Uh, you came across uh, a family that was in the village, and you watched the PKK soldiers, basically, as you describe it, murder a father right in front of you with your, uh, before you could react or even fully understand what was going on. And then you saw the family. Sort of react to this loss. What was that like?
3: So, I'll, I'll walk you through what happened. We were doing a patrol. I was near the end. I heard a commotion up front. I was turned my GoPro on and I said, "You know, I, I think we're taking a prisoner." And I got a little closer, and then I saw the the guy got shot. The civilian get shot by a very young soldier, he couldn't have been more than 18. And then, yeah, the, the guy's family, small children ran out screaming, and then we turned around and walked away. It was It was awful, but you know what? I've had a lot of time to think about this. And, you know, afterwards they were like, made hand gestures like they thought he might have been a suicide bomber. I believe the guy was Arabic, so there was probably a language barrier, the Kurds speak Kurdi. and, you know, I'm sure the yelling was the soldier telling him to stop walking towards us, but he didn't understand, and, you know, in the Canadian military, I would have, you know, taken a warning shot at the ground if the guy kept coming, leg shot, if he kept coming, then put him down. But like the, these guys aren't weren't trained by Western military, and and even at that, I'm sure like you know it was a tragic mistake that probably could have been prevented by Western military training. But that's a luxury that they don't have there.
0: In the book, you talk about that bothering you. I can see now that it it's an issue that that you've obviously spent a lot of time and nights thinking about. How is it to deal with kids on a battlefield? How do you come to grips with that?
3: I mean, these people, they're going through, like, you know, they're not like me. I, I left and came back to Canada, but, you know, people there, uh they don't have anywhere, like, safe to to go so and that was you know part of my motivation for going and yeah i mean it's i mean through all wars in history i'm sure well there's obviously children uh children invo- involved and you know i'm sure they, they you know bear the brunt of it
0: in your book when you describe that scene uh, you are right, I carried a guilty feeling in my heart that wouldn't go away. I recognized the same feeling from a dark night in Afghanistan a year ago, and I fought like hell to bury and forget it. What happened in Afghanistan? Okay. You felt the terror that ISIS creates. You made sure to keep one last bullet to kill yourself with if you faced capture by them. You've looked them in the eyes. You've felt their bullets literally brush past your face. And you've killed men fighting for their cause. Is it possible
3: to defeat ISIS? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, as a as an organization, yes. As an ideology, that I'm not sure of. How do you defeat the organization? Take out their logistics. I mean, same, same way we've defeated every enemy for the past thousands of years, I mean, demoralize them, destroy their infrastructure, uh, destroy their ability to wage war. Now the ideology, that would be a long process that would involve a lot of education, essentially I think is the way to defeat religious extremism.
0: Dylan Hillier, author of One Soldier, A Canadian Soldier's Fight Against ISIS. Thank you for talking with us today.
3: Thank you very much for having me. And welcome home. Thank you.
0: There's a part uh, in that conversation when we talked about uh, the impact of fighting a war with children on the battlefield around you, being a witness and a party to the conflict, Uh, and then his memory that he mentions in the book just very briefly of an incident in Afghanistan. He uh, simply just wasn't really ready or in an emotional space to talk about that. So you'll notice there's a bit of a gap in the interview there. Uh, if you want to hear more of that conversation, because it's it's part of a longer piece, you can find uh, it as a standalone podcast. We'll put it up as soon as we can on Newstalk1010.com. I'll have it on my website at 2E.com, and I'll tweet it out as well. A uh, link if you're following me on Twitter at 2E, t o w h e y. After the news, uh, I'm going to be joined uh, in the 3 o'clock hour by a lawyer who is representing A Canadian man who will uh, go to court Monday morning to get Major League Baseball and the Cleveland Indians to not be called the Cleveland Indians and to make it essentially illegal for us to call them that in Ontario or to use the logo with the uh, the head of the smiling, cartoonish Indian chief on it. We'll find out why he thinks that's important after the news at 3 o'clock.
1: to Mark Tuey on in-depth radio news talk
2: 1010
0: hey welcome to the back side of the program coming up I'll be joined by the lawyer representing a man who is seeking A court order from the Ontario Superior Court. They'll be in court Monday morning to get an injunction against the Cleveland Indians coming to town to play the Toronto Blue Jays in Game 3 of the ALCS at Rogers Centre. This man wants the court to ban the use of the term Cleveland Indians and to force them to take the logos off their jerseys. I'm going to ask you... Whether this is—is is this a Canadian thing to do? I mean, is this what good hosts and neighbors do? Do you, you people you invite people up to your city and then you take uh, you know court action to get them to change their name? That doesn't seem like a neighborly thing to do. We'll talk about that in a moment. But right now, on
1: this day in history,
0: on this day in 1970, for you youngins out there, pay attention. After a domestic. Canadian-based terrorist group called the Front de Libération du Québec, or FLQ, with a history of bombings. I think they bombed uh, about 95 uh, different things, lots of post office boxes all over Quebec. Anyway, the FLQ had kidnapped British Trade Commissioner James Cross and Quebec Labour Minister Pierre Laporte. Laporte was later killed by them. Uh, Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau, on October 16, 1970, declared the War Measures Act and ordered the Canadian Army onto the streets of Quebec to provide security.
5: I am speaking to you at a moment of grave crisis, when violent and fanatical men are attempting to destroy the unity and the freedom of Canada. For that reason, the government, following an analysis of the facts, including the requests of the government of Quebec and of the city of Montreal for urgent action, decided to proclaim the War Measures Act. It did so at 4 a.m. this morning in order to permit the full weight of government to be brought quickly to bear on all those persons advocating or practicing violence as a means of achieving political ends. The War Measures Act gives sweeping powers to the government. It also suspends the operation of the Canadian Bill of Rights.
0: It was a highly controversial move, especially in Quebec, where they saw Canadian soldiers for the first time posted in front of government buildings, on street corners, and uh, in just making their presence on, hundreds of people were arrested and held without charges in sweeping uh, sweeping arrests to uh, to track down uh, the FLQ in Quebec. And 40 years ago today on October 16, 1976 a very bored Memphis disc jockey, Rick Dees decided that he knew how to create a disco tune that would be just as good as the records he was playing on air. He was right, and he recorded Disco Duck, and it rocketed to the top of the Billboard 100 on this day in 1976. Listen carefully for what sounds a lot to me like Donald Trump in the role of Disco Duck. It's catchy. Yeah, I had to put up with a whole decade of that. Everybody now thinks, oh, yeah, oh, I love the music of the 80s and the 70s. It was crap. It was always crap. Oh, you people don't know what's going on. <sighs> there you go. That was today in history. The uh, question that I have for you is 416-872-1010. I'm interested in, in your thoughts. We're going to have the lawyer on. For a, a Canadian man named uh, Douglas Cardinal, he is a very well-renowned uh, art- architect. Uh, Canadian's got the Order of Canada, uh, but he is filed an injunction. It will be heard by Ontario Superior Court Monday morning, and what he wants the court to do—excuse me—what he wants the court to do is to bar Major League Baseball, the Cleveland Indians. Rogers Communications, which owns the uh, Rogers Center and, and the Blue Jays, uh, from using the term Cleveland Indians and the logo, the, uh, the Indian chief uh, head, Chief Wahoo, it's called. Uh, he doesn't want uh, any representation of, of that or any use of the term Cleveland Indians in Ontario during the uh, American League Championship Series. He wants it basically to be illegal. And it'll go to court. It'll be interesting to hear from his lawyer in a few minutes' time about why they're arguing that the court intercede and, and what justification they're gonna they're gonna make to the court in terms of why this is so urgent. He he, I think, wants an injunction to be handed out Monday so that the literally the the Indians coming into Toronto for Monday night's game will have to tear their, you know, the the logo off their jerseys. Okay, I get the argument. We've had this argument for the last week about how incentive it is or isn't to use terms like Cleveland Indians, Washington Redskins, etc. But is it our place as Canadians, as the hosts of the Cleveland Indians when they come in to play ball, is it our place as the neighbor and the host to be telling that team, that city, that country what they should call themselves? We could be upset about it, but really? Canada is supposed to be this mild-mannered northern neighbor. We're the polite ones. We're the ones who are always sorry for everything. What do you think this does to our reputation in the United States? 416-872-1010. We're always very sensitive about how Toronto appears. I mean, everybody was worried that, oh, Toronto, Rob Ford was going to destroy the name of Toronto. Crazy talk. Rob Ford Made himself a laughingstock. Didn't make the city a laughingstock. But I have to wonder what the Americans are going to be talking about in Cleveland, about the city that's so uppity, uppity up, so up its own patoot, that it wants to change the name of our team. If I'm, a, if I'm a Cleveland Indian fan. I mean, is that really something that we should be doing here? Who are we to tell them what to call their baseball team? I think it's ridiculous. We can be offended by it. That's fine. But what business do our courts have telling them what to call their baseball team? Dave, uh, you're in Toronto. Do you think that this is something that Canada should do, or is this just going to be an embarrassment for the city and the whole nation? Embarrassment, man. What? Uh, what? Is, do you think that uh, there's a problem with the name Cleveland Indians? Yeah,
6: it's the same as what happens when the Chicago Blackhawks come to Toronto. That's another, you know, a native Native American. I just think it's an embarrassment. This guy's embarrassing us.
0: Yeah, I think it's. I, I understand the insensitivity, and I understand wanting it to change. And I suspect that in the next few years, a lot of these are going to change. The logo that uh, that Cleveland uses now and that Major League Baseball uses for Cleveland now and a lot of the, the imagery that they use is no longer the Chief Wahoo logo. It's just a big red C. So I think they're slowly going that way. But I think it's a bit uh, presumptuous of us to go to our courts to order them to change their name.
6: I agree. But what happens... You never answer my question, though. What happens when Chicago Blackhawks come to Toronto? That's another, you know.
0: Absolutely. Somebody will try to do the same, I'm sure.
6: You know, I just, I'm just i embarrassed. I mean, like, <laughs> we already have enough problems getting, like, they have enough problems getting, like, we're always put on an afternoon games. For, you know, it's like the game should be on a night, and they put us on at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. So what's going to be happening next? We'll put us on at 10 in the morning? because
0: no, We'll be at 3 a.m. You're absolutely right. <laughs> Thanks very much, Dave. Yeah, okay. Uh, Ken. What do you think? Do you think uh, this is uh, the right thing for us to do, stand up for the rights of Indigenous people, or do you think that we're kind of pushing our luck and we're not acting very neighborly?
4: Well, Mark, I was just talking to you screener, and I've been waiting for this for a long time to voice my opinion. Uh, In Major League Lacrosse, the top team in Canada right now is from the Six Nations Reserve, which is Brantford, and they are Indian, and they call themselves the Chiefs. They also have a hockey team, the uh native hockey, they're very good and they call themselves the Warriors. And I live next to reserve, I get a lot of those guys just great and one buddy of mine's got a little hot rod car and he calls it the Indian.
0: <laughs> but I guess the the argument goes though it's their heritage and if they choose to call themselves that, that's fine. But for a bunch of, uh, you know, let's face it, guys from the Dominican Republic and uh, in the United States who play baseball in Cleveland to call themselves the Indians or, or to play hockey or, or what have you, to to pick a, a native name, it doesn't make a lot of sense.
4: Well, guess me, I know it's big things in football now, like they want the Chiefs brand, and, and, well, Redskin Washington, that could be a little tough one, too, I think.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I, I don't think and there's any Chicago doubt.
4: Chicago Blackhawks, well, there was never a tribe called the Blackhawks. Mm-hmm. The skin one I really don't like, but as far as yourself, the Braves, and I know like my, my friends here who are Native, they don't mind being called the Braves.
0: Uh, thanks very much, for, Andrew. I appreciate... Uh, sorry, Ken, I appreciate that. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye. Hey, we're going to take a short uh, break here for traffic, and when we come back, uh, I hope we will have uh, the lawyer for Douglas Cardinal joining us uh, to uh, explain exactly what it is that they're asking for the court to do. And... Uh, You know, what his argument's for, if you'll share some of those with us, and whether or not he thinks the court will actually render a decision uh, before game time. That's next.
1: Spouting common sense from his uncommon thought process. Uh, We don't know how it works either. Mark Tuey,
0: News Talk 1010. Monday night, our beloved Toronto Blue Jays will face off against another team in the third game of the american league championship series who will they be playing a team from cleveland a team that will be wearing a uniform that will say something to differentiate them from toronto we used to call them still do call them the cleveland indians but that is Gaining a lot of uh, a lot of there's an uproar, a swelling, if you will, of uh, you know popular sentiment about whether or not it's appropriate for professional sports teams, high school sports teams, uh, and the like to use Aboriginal names. Cleveland Indians, we have the Washington Redskins. Somebody on the text board seven ten ten reminded me of the Edmonton Eskimos um all of which have been uh, have been pointed out as perhaps culturally inappropriate insensitive and insulting it's one thing to be offended by them it's another thing to ask them to change it's yet something else to sort of go through a process to influence and basically force them to change but what one toronto one ontario man douglas uh, cardinal wants to do is uh, is to have the courts order them to not be known by that name when they're here in ontario And uh, I'm interested in your calls about whether you think this is a neighborly thing to do. I mean, is this what you do when your neighbor comes to town is you you tell them how to run their life and and you unload all the stuff that you think that they're doing wrong? You go to the, you know, I think. I mean, what? How does this reflect on on Toronto's reputation? Four one six eight seven two ten ten. I know we've got a couple of calls on hold. I'll ask you to hang on because right now I want to bring into the conversation Michael Swinwood, who is with Elders Without Borders. Borders, pardon me. And he is the lawyer representing Douglas Cardinal in this action. Mr. Swinwood, welcome to the show. Hi. Thank you very much. So, uh, tell me what the the uh, the basis of your application to the court is and uh, in what your client is seeking in terms of redress?
6: Sure. Just let me make it very clear that uh, I'm working with uh, Lenzner Eslat from Toronto uh, on this matter, their lead counsel uh, for the application. So the application is essentially seeking injunctive relief uh, to stop Cleveland baseball team from displaying their logo when they're in uh, the World Series here against, uh, as you put it, the beloved Blue Jays.
0: And so does that uh, so displaying the logo and in my understanding that referring them to them as the Cleveland Indians is something that you've asked uh, the court to instruct uh, Major League Baseball and, and Rogers Communications not to do?
6: well the the, the basis of the application is, is that the combination is is the racist uh, derogatory insensitive impact uh, that the logo particularly has when associated with the word Indian I mean, really, any, any person who might look at that logo and think that it somehow is supposed to respectfully um, represent uh, the image of the indigenous people in not only this country but the United States might perchance um, find it to be cartoonish. They might, might, might perchance find it to be derogatory. Uh, just by looking at it,
0: it certainly is a cartoonish representation. So, is your client is your client okay with people just calling them the Cleveland Indians without the logo being present?
6: Well, I think that the, the one has to come to the concept of sensitivity here. You have to appreciate that they're related. Uh, you, you know, uh, uh, there's a very important uh, question that you've just posited. Because the word Indian, what does that mean? What is an Indian? I know Haudenosaunee, I know Algonquin, I know Mi'kmaq, I know Lillooet, I know Chilcotin, and on and on and on it goes, with many, many, many tribes throughout North America and South America, and all linked, by the way, but they became known as an Indian, and really it's much more profound than that because in the end, the Indian Act, uh, or as it was once known, the Department of Indian Affairs, what's that? Right. What are those things? Um, there, there is no education surrounding this. No one seems to understand the depth and fundity of the relationship between the dominant society and the indigenous peoples in North and South America. But and, what, that, and what? the dominant society is is the one who is imbuing and allowing these things to go forward.
0: Uh, fair enough. I've got two questions for you. I'm running out of time, so I'll give them to both at the same time. One is: uh, Do you think that the court? which uh, I guess you're going before the court Monday at some point. Are you actually expecting them to treat this with such urgency that you might have a decision before the ball game? And if so, what's the basis of the urgency here?
6: Douglas Cardinal and I were talking Friday morning about the uh, suicides in Stanley Mission and Lac La Ranch, the two young teenage girls who committed suicide in Stanley Mission and committed suicide in Lac La Ranche in northern Saskatchewan with tears in our eyes, and saying how... Disgusting it is that this is a crisis right across the country, in Indigenous country, suicide watches everywhere. There are now 20 teenagers on suicide watch in Lac La
0: How does it, that relate to a baseball team?
6: It relates to a baseball team by virtue of the logo that they're displaying, which is racist and discriminatory, and puts people into the consciousness of not understanding the depths and profundity of the problem.
0: So, do you think lives will be lost if the Cleveland Indians go onto the playing field at Rogers Centre wearing a logo? I
6: think, I, I, yeah, I think that you know, perhaps the platform that's required here in order to perfectly answer your question is a level of education that most people do not possess. And therefore, what we need to do is we need to have a dialogue here so that we can begin to understand the relationship between the crisis in, in, in the Indigenous world as it relates particularly to youth, the consequences of residential schools this is what we're seeing, the consequences of residential schools. And we can happily go out and watch a baseball game, and I would love to go and watch the baseball game myself. But to have to look at that straight in your face all the time and know that people do not understand the depth of the situation because they're prepared to go out there as professional baseball players and wear this logo that is obviously derogatory and discriminatory and racist.
0: Is it fair for me to say then that more than about changing the dress of the Cleveland team when they they march out onto the ball field Monday night, this is. I don't want to use the. I don't want to sound derogatory. But this is a PR effort to, to raise people's attention. It's a it's a stunt more than it's a legitimate court claim.
6: Wow, that's amazing that you would use that terminology—a stunt, a stunt—to bring to to the consciousness of people how deeply racist and profoundly discriminatory these practices are. You would call that a stunt, a PR stunt. Is it That's
0: or isn't it? That's quite amazing.
6: That's quite amazing that you would, you would uh, view it that way. Let me, let me just put it to you this way, sir. Douglas Cardinal's been uh, an activist all his life in relation to the inequalities that exist in the Indigenous world. The last time I saw him cook up a stunt in order to bring to the attention of the Canadian public how deep and profound this problem is, was never. So that's a no. Well, that's a, 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 for sure it's a no. 100% it's a no.
0: Thanks very much. I really appreciate you taking the time. Okay, thanks. That's Michael Swinwood. He is uh, with Elders Without Borders, one of the lawyers uh, representing Douglas Cardinal in this case that goes before the Ontario Superior Court Monday, seeking uh, injunctive relief. Basically, they want the court to instruct Major League Baseball, Rogers Communications, which owns the Rogers uh, Center, and uh, in a lot of networks, as well as the Cleveland Indians, that they can't use their logo, the Chief Wahoo logo, which is a cartoonish representative of what used to be thought to be a quote-unquote Aboriginal um, Indian, in, in, in conjunction with the team's name, Cleveland Indians. Uh, I'll be back with uh, your thoughts. Jeff, thanks for hanging on. Andrew, thanks for hanging on. We'll take your calls at 416-872-1010. Do you think this is Canada's place to tell Cleveland what to call its team?
1: Here's a brand new way to listen to News Talk 1010, the iHeartRadio app for your mobile and tablet. It's available as a preview right now, downloaded for free today, and enjoy News Talk 1010 anytime, anywhere. You're listening to Mark Tui, News Talk 1010.
0: Well, i will let up the uh, text board and uh, and callers. We're not going to go forward with, uh, with the callers. We're going to switch to another topic in a, mo- in a moment here. But just, let me wrap up. Sort of my thoughts on that. Look, it is, I grew up in Western Canada. Uh, I went to an elementary school in Kamloops, B.C., where pretty much two-thirds of the kids that were my friends and schoolmates all lived on the, uh, what was then called the Indian Reserve across the river. Uh, They, uh, you know, they were, your friends were were natives. They're aboriginals. We called them Indians. They called themselves at that time Indians. Words change, meanings change. Um, So, you know, I understand that it's, It's insensitive, and it's uh, uncomfortable, and it's offensive to people. And I think that if uh, I don't use it anymore. So I understand the pressures on teams like the Cleveland Indians, the Edmonton Eskimos, the Washington Redskins. And I think, you know what? As logos develop and change, it's probably time for a refresh. And if you look at the Cleveland Indians Chief Wahoo logo, the uh, smiling Indian sort of beaming cartoonishly outside of that circle, it is definitely a caricature and uh in probably time for it to be retired. You change the name of the team from Cleveland Indians? Maybe. Maybe not. I think that uh Indians never really accurately described native americans and aboriginal canadians. You know, maybe you keep that but you divorce it from the the ridiculous look of a cartoon character of a of a of a aboriginal person. Maybe that helps a little bit. I don't know. Uh but I have you know, serious doubts about this lawsuit, and uh, these guys were very good. Excuse me, I've got to clear my throat regularly here. Still have the vestiges of that cold. Uh, these guys were very good at drumming up PR. You know, a news release went out uh, Friday. It was followed up today. You know, you know, offering spokespeople. I thought it would be good to have one of them on to talk about. Their legitimate claims. I think that they have some very legitimate claims and the stuff that uh, the lawyer was talking about in terms of the very real, very serious issues that confront Aboriginal peoples in Canada. Absolutely. And I, you know, I commend them for raising public profile. And this was you know, a good way to do it. We're talking about it on the radio. They're probably talking about it tomorrow on the radio, too. But let's be clear. It's a stunt. There's no doubt about that. This is a PR stunt. No court in the land is going to think that this is so urgent that it's going to push aside all the other business that it has stacked up with murders and in the you know important legal cases to hear this on an emergency basis to grant injunctive relief about a baseball logo. That's ridiculous. And any officer of the court, any lawyer who would waste the court's time and the taxpayer's purse to pretend that this has to be done by noon on Monday should be disbarred. I just think that's a complete waste of the court's time. It's a very serious issue, but it's not going to be fixed by changing the name or the logo on a baseball team that's playing tomorrow night. That's ridiculous. The suicide problem that we have with Aboriginal youth on reserves is huge, but you know who's going to fix that? The Aboriginal leaders. If they wake up, and they start leading. Kids kill themselves when they see no hope of a brighter future. And on some of these reserves I've been to, there is no hope of a brighter future because you look at the tribal leadership, you look at your parents, and you see nothing hopeful there. That needs to change. And that's not something that experts and social workers and money from the outside coming into your reserve is going to fix. That, that's on you. And those native leaders who have stood up and taken that responsibility have made phenomenal progress. The chief in the Indian uh, nation in Inasoyas, the one in Kamloops BC. Some of these Indian tribes, some of the 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 the, the nations are being run phenomenally. Follow their example. There are examples out there. But you know, pretending that it's about you know a cartoon character of an Indian just demeans the whole question. Good on you for making us talk about it, but shame on you for wasting the court's time on something like that. Huh. That's kind of used up all the time. I was going to talk about something else. I want to just very briefly highlight uh, something that happened uh, in, the, in the week. I was going to put it in the week in review, but I thought maybe we'd have time to talk about it. It is the uh, the never-ending saga of Expo 2025 and, and how many people want this darn thing to come to Toronto. Well, <clears throat> Expo 2025... There's a group of business people and some city councillors led by Councillor Kristen Wong Tam who desperately want Toronto to apply to host the World's Fair in 2025 and to join the esteemed lineup of cities who have formerly hosted World's Fairs. Uh, you know, put Toronto right up there on the same level at Tsukuba, Japan and uh, Daejeon, South Korea and Kunming, China and Eichi, Japan and Beale. Uh, Switzerland, and Yosu, South Korea. Cities you've never heard from. Cities you've never heard about. That's how brilliantly successful the World's Fair can be. Here is what uh, Claire Hopkinson, CEO of the Toronto Arts Council and the co-chair of Expo Canada's steering committee, had to say about why this would be a good idea.
5: Expo 2025 is a a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. It is a rare moment in time when aspirations converge with opportunity and potential. The feasibility study, and I'm very happy to say this, shows clearly that Expo would deliver a multi-billion dollar boost to the economy, far outstripping the costs.
0: This group, privately privately funded uh, business group, figures that the cost would be about $2 billion, so at least double that because this is what happens, so $4 billion. But let's assume that it's $2 billion, and let's assume that they're right, that it's a $4.7 billion boost to the GDP. What that means is that's money going back into local businesses. And uh, if that's really the case and the business community really believes with confidence that that will happen, then let them pay for it. Because the city's not going to get a dime of that GDP, so the city shouldn't put a dime into this thing. The province and the feds will get tax revenues from that. Maybe they want to kick some of that in. Maybe they don't. But the taxpayer really shouldn't be paying for this. If the business is going to reap $4.7 billion in economic input, let them pay for it. That's all I have to say on that. We'll be back in a moment on in-depth Radio News Talk 1010 with the rest the week in review proper and stupid of the week.
1: Cause I will do whatever comes to mind to go and say
4: Things
6: I said don't usually come easily There's
1: one thing I need you now to know about me You know I'm under the influence So don't trust every word I say
0: Today's new music influence by Swedish artist Tove Lowe Her album Lady Wood out on the 28th of October. Uh, Yeah, fun catchy tunes. I hadn't heard anything from her before. I like all of them. This is not the latest of the tracks that she's released. There's two others. Uh, But this is the one that I thought was uh, reasonably catchy. So, we're at that time in the day. It's time for... What is it time for, Mike?
1: Now. Now! Time for the week in review.
0: Toronto Ward 5 Counselor Justin DiCiano is under investigation by the city's integrity commissioner, according to the CBC. Of course, the integrity commissioner doesn't comment on ongoing investigations or uh, or even agree or acknowledge that they exist. But the CBC alleges that uh, Etobicoke resident Malcolm Strawn filed a complaint against the Ward 5 Etobicoke councillor. And if the CBC story is accurate, the complaint probably shouldn't take long to investigate, uh, quite frankly. Strawn alleges that DiCiano violated council's code of conduct by accepting what he argues amounts to a gift from a developer in 2009. Maybe that's true, maybe it's not. Problem is it doesn't matter because DiCiano wasn't a counselor in 2009, nor was he a candidate, as uh, the complainant alleges, because you couldn't possibly be a candidate before the beginning of January in 2010, because no registrations had been taken until that point. complaint apparently goes on later to argue that Diciano acted improperly when he spearheaded a successful drive this year, not long ago, to rezone a piece of land that would benefit the same developer. I don't know about that. Uh, The deal smelled fishy to me at first as well, but I went out, I walked the piece of land. It's a garbage piece of land, quite frankly, and I just really couldn't find anything that was actually wrong with the deal. It might be distasteful to some. Every council decision benefits someone. And uh, it might be true that DiCiano knows this particular someone who's going to be benefited here. But unfortunately, that's just politics at City Hall. It's not illegal. You might think it should be, but I couldn't possibly comment. Toronto Police Chief took questions from the public on Twitter this year, and I took the opportunity to ask him what uh, operational reason was behind his decision to change the Toronto Police cruisers from a highly visible white to a sneaky Gestapo grey. Uh, he didn't answer my question, of course, but he did answer another question that was basically the same. Here's his answer.
1: That's a fair question, Wendy. You know, when I got on in 1982, the cars were yellow, and when they changed from yellow to white, there was public outrage that they changed to white. And now i switched them from white to silver, and now there's outrage from some people that they're silver. A lot of people like the cars. I made the decision myself. There was no scientific or operational reason. It was a change that I made. It wasn't to modernize a police service. It was the fleet was old, and it was about to be changed, and so I made the change of the color as well.
0: So uh, the question, frankly, just raises more questions. The answer uh, just raises more questions. Uh, It really is a 180-degree flip-flop from the chief's statement when the cars were first reported, the, the color change. In a tweet back then, not that many weeks ago, Saunders said, quote, the color changes ties in with our modernization of policing. Well, he just said that it had nothing to do with policing now. Chief, can we get a straight answer from you on this? I mean, come on already. What Saunders made clear this week, though, in the answer you just heard, was that there was, quote, no scientific or operational reason, end quote, for that change. So that's perfect. What that means is this clears the deck for the Police Services Board to step in and fix this mess. Toronto's police need to be less militarized, not more. They need to be less aggressive, not more. They need to be more trustworthy, not less. Mayor John Tory, Police Board Chair Andrew Pringle, It's up to you now to do your jobs. You're both on the Police Services Board. Stand up for society. My 90 Minutes to Clear campaign grew wings this week as uh, Jerry Agar took up the charge after a semi-trailer truck full of frozen fish crashed and burned on the 401 this week. All westbound express lanes of North America's busiest highway were closed for 11 hours. There were no injuries. There were no criminal charges laid. There was no damage to the asphalt from the fire. Yet still, it took over 11 hours to reopen the express lanes. When Talk 1010's James Murray put the question to Transportation Minister Stephen Del Duca, here's the uninspired and insipid response he received.
1: MTO is always looking for ways to make sure that we're maximizing our resources and that we're able to, uh, to deal with things like yesterday's incident in the, the most efficient way possible.
0: Yeah, he goes on to say, "Look, we're, we 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 always do it the best way, and and you know, let's not make too much out of one. In- well, it's not one incident, minister. It's every incident, and you don't have to look far. Right on this program, I have laid out the activities that they do in Florida. Florida has a standard that requires the road be open within 90 minutes of the crash, and they meet it. It can be done better. It's not hard. There's no mystery, minister." Just pick up the phone and call your counterpart in Florida or Washington State or any one of the other jurisdictions that I'd be happy to fax you the information for because I'm imagining you're the kind of guy who still has a fax machine. And let's get this thing done. Uh, City Hall announced uh, that the Runnymede Fire Hall will reopen this coming Wednesday. It was closed uh, over a year ago because we don't need it. It's surrounded by fire stations. Of course, the union didn't like that, and so the local NDP counselor Sarah Doucette, waged then, back then, even I was there, a pitch battle to keep it alive. And apparently, this station has now been renovated. Ka-ching, ka-ching, imagine how much that cost you. And it's now going to provide new offices, which are not needed, for a public education division, including a captain and six fire and life safety public educators. Well, good for them. Uh, according to a fire department stash- a statement, Quote, Station 424 will serve the West Command and can accommodate operations crews if required. Aha! You mark my words, folks. There will be fire crews sleeping there before this year is out. I don't think it's just a coincidence that this reopening happens right after Fire Chief Jim Sales, who was hired to make changes to bring Toronto's fire service into the 21st century, was forced out of the department just last week. Which brings me to the final and most enjoyable setting of the program. This is Mark Toohey's Stupid of the Week! Feeling stupid? I know I am. This is kind of stupid. The winner of the Stupid of the Week prize for today is Bank. Yeah, I could give it to, uh, you know, marathon organizers of the City of Toronto, but I've chosen to give it to Scotiabank because they might give a damn. Uh, nobody else does. Uh, Lakeshore and many of the downtown Toronto's major roads were closed today from 4 a.m. to 3.30 p.m. for the Scotiabank Toronto Waterfront Marathon. If you're going to pay the money, you're going to put your name on the event, you're going you're gonna to reap the rewards and the slings and arrows. So, 4 a.m. to 3.30 p.m. as I count it, that's 11 and a half hours. I mean, seriously, a one-legged blind man could hop the marathon backwards in less time than that. As I drove in at 11.30 this morning down a jam-packed but still moving Queen Street, there were fat men wearing marathon medals walking home after finishing the marathon. Why did it take until 3.30 p.m.? reopen the roads And, and look hosting a marathon is fine i'm okay with that it's nice for the city closing the roads you know what let's do it but let's do it smarter let's get real about how long the roads need to close and when we close a major route like lakeshore or bay let's at least start prohibiting parking on the alternative routes like queen or king that would be smart the way Scotiabank is running this event it's just stupid
1: what you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things i have ever heard
0: That was Mark
1: Tuohy's Stupid of the Week! Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it.
0: And that brings us uh, pretty much to the end of another program. I will be back again next week from 2 to 4 p.m. You can check out the podcast of our show at Newstalk1010.com. Again, I'll have a uh, separate version of a longer-form interview with Dylan Hillier. will be up there. You'll also be able to find it on my website at Tui.com, T-O-W-H-E-Y.com. And I'll tweet links out on my Twitter account at Tui, T-O-W-H-E-Y. I want to thank you you for taking some time to share your afternoon with me it's always a pleasure the highlight of my week i want to thank uh, tony tedesco ben harrison and mike Trutler for making the show sound great i really just show up and talk they do all of the work my name is mark Tui, and that is everything i have to say carry on